Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for November 27th, 2022. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to talk about a, a few things today. As, uh, as you know, in these videos, I like to cover uh, issues that are in the news uh, in Canada, across the country that have uh, legal issues as at their forefront or else uh, legal angles that might be underappreciated. This week, I'm going to talk about uh, four things. I'm going to talk in, at the end uh, about the Emergencies Act inquiry, which had a big week this week. It wrapped up its proceedings and uh, completed the, the week of testimony, uh, which was, you know, one cabinet minister after another, some senior uh, government staffers from the federal government, and then finally the prime minister on uh, Friday was on the stand for about five and a half hours, so a long time. Uh, lots of uh, lots of testimony and cross examination. So that's uh, certainly a unique situation. So I'm going to come to that and give my interpretation of that. I talked about this uh, some last week, and uh, so some of the analysis that I gave last week for those that uh, were that watched that video or listened in uh, certainly came to pass this week. So uh, that was something of interest. But I'll get to that. I'm going to start off with the uh, Mass Casualty Commission out of Nova Scotia. We've had the final uh, submissions from all the parties, the written submissions posted to the Mass Casualty Commission website. So I'm going to go through uh, some of those, not all of them, there's quite a few from the participants. And then a couple of other stories that were in the news this week. One uh, from Nova Scotia, a child protection matter, which I think people might find interesting. And then get some international news as well. There was a, a case out of uh, the UK, which uh, I think would... Uh, people that are interested in international law uh, might have some interest. So I'm going to spend most of the time, though, talking about the Mass Casualty Commission and the Emergencies Act inquiries. Okay, so uh, first is the Mass Casualty Commission out of Nova Scotia and the closing submissions from all of the participants have now been posted to the commission website. It looked like, and this was uh, done in the Desmond Inquiry as well, that each of the parties were given a limit as to the length of their submissions. It looked like that was about 40 pages. That was the maximum. That's not unusual. That's the way uh, an appeal court uh, brief uh, factum would be uh, have some limitations on its length as well. So uh, that's fine. You have to get across your point in uh, a limited amount of space. That takes more skill than going on at length for you know hundreds or hundreds of pages of, uh, of material so I read through okay so the, the participants the family participants or the, the participants on behalf of the, the victims families were represented by Chester Law, MDW, Bertram McDougall, uh, Lenahan Musgrave and Patterson Law I read through those briefs uh, those were all really well done Anybody that's been following the Mass Casualty Commission throughout will be familiar with many of the points raised there and many of the points that I've also been raising over time in uh, my submissions and in my report, the Deficits of Trust report, which, uh, plug again, I guess that's still available for uh, as an ebook on Smashwords, Apple uh, Books, uh, or anywhere you get uh, ebooks. And uh, hoping to get some hard copies as well at some point of that. So, uh, Hopefully have an announcement on that in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, so the other, so those were all the, the firms that I just mentioned. They all had uh, nice submissions, uh, close to 40 pages. 
There's a couple of them that were quite short. The Blois, Nickerson, Bryson submission uh, from uh, my friend Tom McDonald. That was only five pages long. Uh, Lisa Banfield's lawyer, uh, Jim Lockyer, actually it was an associate of James Lockyer uh, that did their submission. That was only eight pages long. So that was uh, notable, I guess, uh, for its brevity. But some of the other ones that I thought I wanted to spend a little more time today discussing were the governments and the police association reports and then some of the other organizations that were involved so the federal government's submission was really interesting there was there was uh, this made the news as well a little bit they've admitted some fault uh throughout their submission uh, there's they don't quite say that they admit fault this they frame it in the same way that the commission is framing its work in terms of recommendations for the future it's not finding of liability or fault on anyone's part but rather all right here's how we're going to do things differently which is sort of the flip side of the same coin because certainly if you have a recommendation for the future it would typically mean that something wasn't done right or could have been done better so they talk about communications lessons and there's lots of those training on usage of the radio system training on uh, pictometry, which was the mapping system, which some of the senior officers didn't know how to use, uh, night vision goggles, and uh, so better equipment for going out into rural areas in the wooded areas at night, uh, family liaison training. This came under fire uh, with the RCMP uh, having uh, Two family liaison officers for Heidi Stevenson, Corp, uh, Constable Heidi Stevenson's family. Uh, one family liaison officer for everybody else. Uh, so, like I said, these are all roundabout admissions uh, that I suspect, well, I'm sure, will be used in the civil suit that the victims' families have going on against the RCMP that the RCMP through the Federal Department of Justice has said, well, these are lessons to be learned. Well, uh, I'm sure that in the civil suit, that'll be taken as a civil admission. So we'll see how that uh, unfolds. A couple of others, the uh, Atlantic Police Association and then also the Nova Scotia uh, Chiefs of Police Association, both advocated for a new model of policing in Nova Scotia but not a Nova Scotia police force uh, as the Police Act of Nova Scotia contemplates, but rather a regional model of policing. So, you know, there might be five, six, seven, eight regions in Nova Scotia, each with a police force, each of which would have similar standards, would have interoperability capabilities, so they'd be on the same radio system, using a lot of the same technology, so that if there was something near a border or whether, you know, they had to bring in, uh, you know, reinforcements from another district that everybody would be on the same systems. Well, it's not quite clear to me, and there was no compelling argument or no real attempt at an argument made in any of these submissions as to why a regional model with complete interoperability rather than a provincial model, which would have one system, why is this regional model preferred over a provincial model? Uh, curious to me as to why that distinction really wasn't uh, flushed out a little more and argued in a compelling way. If they're looking for regional models, you know, based on some of the existing 
police forces, the municipal forces in Sydney and in Halifax and some of the other jurisdictions, uh, why a regional model would make sense, but that was their submission. The uh, provincial government, the Attorney General of Nova Scotia made uh, submissions and they really didn't have much to say at all uh, in their submissions, although they, they used up their space. Basically, the uh, province of Nova Scotia, again, more or less reiterating that they don't want to be the entity that creates or runs a police force, even though it seems natural that they would be. All they said through their submissions is that police funding was in place, uh, proper funding, that victim services, uh, the, the services offered to families, uh, family members and community members was adequate in their view, that as when it came to alert ready, uh, that their portion of it or their perceived portion of it, that the emergency management office was ready and capable of using alert ready. And they talked about domestic violence uh, resources throughout the province, suggesting that there's lots of resources for uh, victims of domestic violence. So that wasn't, anyway, they were just sort of saying, here's, here's what we have. Here are the services offered by the province. We think they're okay. We look forward to the recommendations. So uh, not much from the province, uh, as has been the case throughout the Mass Casualty Commission. Next was the National Police Federation, who really, uh, uh, this is a new organization. This is the union that represents police officers below the rank of, uh, of sergeant. And uh, not much, uh, anyway, they, they've really had a hard time establishing or reestablishing their credibility throughout the Mass Casualty Commission. In their final submission, basically what they look for throughout is more money for policing. Uh, they don't make any admissions, uh, no admissions that any of their officers made any mistakes or could have done anything better. They simply say there should be more money for policing, there should be more uh, and higher standards for policing. And that what they really mean there is that there should be equipment standards, so night vision goggles, uh, you know, the GPS capabilities uh, for individual officers in the, on their phones to be used during operations. There should be a helicopter strategy plan of course, that's true. Um, another interesting, uh, so mostly they were just looking for more money. Uh, wasn't really a lot of analysis behind that. The one thing they did say, which I thought was kind of interesting, uh, was that there should be, during a critical incident, sort of reminder broadcasts on the radio throughout, just to ensure that everybody has situational awareness, maybe every half hour or however long, maybe every hour, whatever makes sense during the incident, that somebody should come on and say, all right, folks, just to remind us of all where we are, here's, you know, here's what we know, uh, here's what we're looking for. And, you know, rather than hoping that everybody just remembers uh, or has uh, been paying attention to the radio throughout and is situationally aware. So that might not be a bad idea. Uh, but again, uh, no, re no real analysis of the situation itself just sort of hey we think police should have more resources probably the best written and uh, most compelling brief from what i read was the one from the bc civil liberties association they said the problems that unfolded over the 
course of the events of the mass casualty were not resource related, but rather just poor decision making throughout. And that those decisions, you know, not checking in on, not listening to the people in Portapique that told them about these other roads, not listening to, you know, anyway, just not, not uh, doing proper analysis during the course of the unfolding of events. And that these were made worse by the bloated and hierarchical structure of the RCMP. Now, the BC Civil Liberties Association, who combined with East Coast Prison Justice uh, Society in their submission, recommended what they called uh, transforming the police governance framework in Nova Scotia uh, and in so doing uh, have the full participation of marginalized communities and that's that echoes uh, what I was saying in my analysis as well and uh, hopefully the Mass Casualty Commission picks up on that. So those were those are really interesting uh, so, some Interesting in what people didn't say in many cases, uh, but uh, those are the perspectives. The last one I'd mention is uh, from the, there were two from Avalon Sexual Assault Center, uh, lawyer Aaron Breen, and the Nova Scotia Legal Aid submission. Now, Nova Scotia Legal Aid, they weren't questioning uh, witnesses. They weren't really active during the Mass Casualty Commission, but uh, they made a really good submission, I thought, and there's an Avalon Sexual Assault Center. They were focused on the issue of domestic violence and how that would be, how the treatment of domestic violence issues can be improved in Nova Scotia. And both in both cases, they advocated for something of a decriminalization model. And so the confronting the issue is most people don't want to report somebody for a domestic violence. Uh, incident because they're worried that if they get into the justice system the their husband their partner is you know going to lose their job they're going to have all kinds of financial consequences all of these things when really many people want to maintain the relationship they just need a break for a few days they need something you know to take place some counseling to be offered to the the uh, perpetrator of abuse so in all those cases, the things that people want in this sort of restorative justice thinking that would, uh, you know, improve a relationship, improve a marriage, improve a family, uh, you know, home situation, those can't happen with the criminalization and the pro-prosecution thinking that goes behind many of these, uh, you know, policies that the public prosecution service has. And that, uh, you know, the criminal justice system and the, the police involvement, you know, requires or usually entails. So basically what they are advocating for is a new model of, you know, using domestic violence court, having some sort of carrot and stick model of, all right, well, you know, if you go into, if you admit what you've done, admit your own fault, take some counseling, get some treatment, improve uh, your relationship, then you know, the criminal consequences of your actions uh, can be set aside. You can go through a restorative justice type process. Well, right now, restorative justice, which is where you do something outside of court and then your charges are withdrawn if you, you know, show your that you can take responsibility in another way. Those That restorative justice is not available for domestic violence cases in Nova Scotia. That's a policy decision. 
that the Crown Prosecutors, uh, the Public Prosecution Service has made. And so Avalon and uh, the Nova Scotia Legal Aid uh, Office, uh, who are on the ground, see these situations every day, all the time. Uh, this is what they advocate. Hopefully the Mass Casualty Commission picks up on that and uh, makes some changes to the way those situations are treated in Nova Scotia. So those were the, uh, those are what I took to be the interesting parts of the Mass Casualty Commission uh, written submissions. Uh, so those are all on the Mass Casualty Commission website. They're under the uh, decisions uh, tab of the documents. So you can look there if you want to read through those. If you're looking to read through just a few of them, I would go to, I would say, the Federal Department of Justice one just to see um, a little bit of their uh, admissions. The BC Civil Liberties Association submission I thought was really well done. And the Nova Scotia Legal Aid submission I think would be an eye-opener for many people. So uh, go to those ones if you're looking to just read a few. All right, so uh, that's it for that story. Couple of uh, One other story from Nova Scotia that just came out this week this is a Nova Scotia child protection matter, and there was a case with Justice uh, Elizabeth Jollymore. And the issue is in those cases where there's a permanent care order made. So children are taken away from their parents, put in the permanent care of either a foster home or put up for adoption, often with a relative, or, or but could be anybody. Well, there's legislation was brought in in 2007 that says where those permanent placements are made by a judge, the judge is not permitted to allow the biological parents any access, any access rights to uh, their children. Now, in many cases, especially where this uh, child's been placed with a relative, they're still in the area the, of where their biological parents live, or they'll, you know, they'll find them online. If they're old enough, they'll, they'll figure out who they are and try to seek them out. But a judge is not allowed to order that. Now, there's lots of parents. Well, it's not lots, but, you know, there's, I think there's uh, 500 and some children in care. There was, it was higher. It was up to 800, uh, but it's gone down in, in some recent years. But in, many, in some cases, the biological parents, even though they may not be capable of looking after the kids uh, full time, there's still a relationship there and, you know, some access uh, can be beneficial, but there would be discretion on the part of the judge to either order that or allow it. Now, since 2007, uh, it was a Liberal government that put this in, that, or sorry, 2017, sorry, not 2007. 2017, that now when children are adopted or placed in foster care, they're not allowed to order any access to the biological parent. Now, uh, Rolly Thompson, who was uh, my family law professor at Dalhousie, uh, disagrees with this, says it's a, a power struggle between the Department of Community Services and the courts, a little tug of war, and DCS, Department of Community Services, has the discretion they can their workers can allow these kind of visits to take place but a judge who you know is a neutral arbiter of these things is not allowed to so it seems very strange to me that that would be the case um, you know some children uh, do better when they still have parental contact and it would be makes sense uh, you know the department of community services is a 
you know, they're a party. When something goes to court, they're on one side, the parents are on the other side, the judge makes a decision. So it's DCS is not a neutral party in this. They're one of the litigants. And so, you know, it doesn't always, it doesn't make sense to me, at least, that they would be the ones that have the discretion, not the judge. So to change that now would require a legislative amendment. Um, we'll see. This was in the news this week if uh, the government has picked up on that and maybe they'll uh, take a look at that for the spring session of the legislature. Another case, now this one's uh, international, but it caught my eye. Uh, Scotland was in the uh, Supreme Court, the uh, UK uh, Supreme Court, and they were trying to... So this was all Brexit-related. Scotland had a referendum... 10 years ago anyway about leaving the united kingdom and it was fairly narrowly defeated not as narrow as the quebec uh, referendum which was less than a percentage point but uh, in scotland it was i think about 55 45 in favor of remaining within the uk well then brexit happens and you know there was a brexit vote where uh, the uk voted to leave uh, the european union most of Scotland voted over, well, Scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay within the European Union. So now there's a little movement afoot to have a new referendum in Scotland for separating from the United Kingdom. And presumably thereafter, they would rejoin the European Union. Well, so the Scottish Parliament, Scotland has its own parliament, and they d thought their uh, and their first minister uh nicola sturgeon uh said well we should be able to as a scottish parliament it's not quite the same as a provincial uh, legislature but they it's similar it's a federal system of sorts um more centralized than ours than the canadian system but they have scotland wanted to have their own parliament authorized their own referendum and that that referendum would be a binding referendum in other words if they voted to separate from the united kingdom that that would be enough that's all they needed to do well they went to the supreme court in the uk and they've uh, now have a ruling that says no that's not the case and actually it was a uh, lord reed who's a scottish uh, judge a judge from scotland that uh, said no it has to go to the Westminster Parliament the United Kingdom Parliament in London that oversees the entire UK to uh, authorize such a referendum so much less likely to uh, that the UK Kingdom or sorry the UK Parliament uh, would allow such uh, a referendum they seem unlikely to anyway but um, so that gives a little more leverage on the UK side Still lots of discussion to be had there. In the So the reason I bring this up, I think it's relevant to any, you know, province. I mean, we don't have that situation so much now at the forefront in Canada. But, it, you know, if you look to Spain or other countries, uh, these there are, there are sections of countries that sometimes look to secede from uh, their, from within their own countries, like Quebec from Canada. Well, this ruling from the UK could be influential. What it said is they rejected the quote-unquote right to self-determination under international law and said that that right only applies to colonies or 
uh, victims of foreign military rule. So not Scotland, not Quebec, uh, not the Basque region of Spain, from what I, I would say, but uh, others uh, others may fit that determine uh, fit that definition. So uh, you know, UK law is not binding on Canada certainly, but it would be I think influential if that issue ever came up here. Okay. So Alberta or Quebec are not going to be able to just uh, decide provincially to uh, to leave the country. Many different considerations here with the Clarity Act and many other things, but uh, I think that decision would be influential. Okay, so uh, enough of that. I want to talk about the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa this week. It was a big week. We had a uh, sort of a lineup of cabinet ministers coming in. We had uh, Marco Mendicino, who was the uh, public... Uh, it was involved in public safety. We had uh, Anita Anand, um, uh, Department of National Defense, Minister of National Defense, uh, Christia Freeland, uh, Minister of Finance, Deputy Prime Minister, and finally the Prime Minister himself. We had some staffers as well. A lot of the uh, testimony this week focused on, all right, what did Cabinet know? Because the question is, did Cabinet have enough justification did they have the justification the legal justification to invoke the emergencies act um, some early, some <laughs> some funny things in a sense happened with uh minister mendicino the lawyer for the convoy this brendan uh, miller uh, got kicked out of the uh, hearing by the ju by justice rouleau he was talking over justice rouleau very uh, kind of disrespectful um behavior demeanor and so he got kicked out which is uh, something very rare but then something really bizarre, that one of the, what he was trying to do, he was trying to make this point or posit this theory that this Nazi flag that was seen in some of the news coverage was actually brought in by uh, a liberal government staffer. And there hasn't been, as far as I could see, any real hard evidence of this, but that was the claim. And he goes out, the lawyer is seen on video going out into the hallway tracking down this reporter greg mccachran and saying hey you you're you're the guy i'm looking for uh why don't you come in and testify but it wasn't him at all it was somebody that um uh, works for a lobbying firm out of toronto who was not in ottawa and there was proof the lobbying firm provided proof that he hasn't wasn't in ottawa during the protests or anyway so some bizarre stuff uh not helping the convoys uh legal position or their public position uh, having their lawyer Getting kicked out in a bizarre fashion, um, making this identity mistake, which anyway, just looks really bad if your lawyer is um, undermining their own credibility in that fashion. Uh, Minister Freeland talked about the economic concerns the uh, government had. And uh, there was lots of talk about some of the, uh, the risks that the government was hearing about, some of the advice they were getting from the public service from CSIS, uh, from others. Now, um, and the, but much of it focused on the legal interpretation of the Emergencies Act and the standard to be reached, but none of the cabinet ministers would talk about this because, you know, they were receiving advice from the police, from their public service, from the National Security Advisor, from CSIS, all of these things, but they were also getting legal advice. All right, what is the standard to be met to invoke the Emergencies Act. And nobody would talk about that. They would talk about everything else the cabinet learned, but not the legal advice. 
And there's a reason for that. I mean, all any legal advice that an entity receives, a business, a government, an individual, is covered by solicitor-client privilege. And you don't have to reveal that. You can. You can waive solicitor-client privilege and talk about it, but uh, you don't have to. And so the cabinet ministers that came in, including the justice minister, David Lametti, uh, wouldn't reveal that. Minister Lametti wouldn't say what advice he had given on the legal interpretation of it. We didn't get that, but I talked about this last week. So the people that watched my video last week, I talked about how the Emergency Act interacts with the CSIS Act and the definition of public order emergency and threats to the security of Canada specifically, those are contained in the CSIS Act, Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act. And the Emergencies Act refers to the CSIS Act. So in a sense, at one point, I know the political opposition was saying, okay, well, the head of CSIS said it didn't meet, that the protests didn't meet their definition in their act. Well, I didn't think that was the end of the story. I know some people thought, all right, there we go. That's the end of the issue. Justice Rouleau will see that, see that CSIS said we don't need this, uh, or didn't meet the definition in their view. Uh, and so that would be it. But it refers to the definition, but the Emergencies Act goes a little further than that. It says it's an emergency that arises from threats to the security of Canada and that is so serious as to be a national emergency. And then it talks about who makes that determination. It's made by the governor and council, that is the cabinet of the, of the country, not by CSIS itself. So that was the interpretation i assume that was the legal advice that the government had been given but nobody would say so until friday when uh, prime minister trudeau himself took the stand and he gave uh, basically he didn't say he this is the advice we received but he did give a legal interpretation that was consistent with what i said last week and what i'm talking about now that the emergencies act while the wording is the same as the CSIS act it's a broader view of it because it's not CSIS talking about, you know, wiretapping somebody, spying on somebody, invading somebody's privacy for a national security issue, but this is an emergency of, you know, where cabinet looks at what CSIS is telling us, what are the police telling us, what are, you know, what economic consequences potentially, potentially whether that would count as a a factor we'll see what justice Rouleau says about that but all these other security threats that the government would be uh, you know having brought to their attention would all be relevant considerations and so anyway the the week was all focused on this legal interpretation and the prime minister uh, gave it uh, that you know the, the narrow definition that CSIS uses is not the same as the government would use when deciding on the Emergencies Act. I think Justice Rouleau is going to accept that this wider scope uh, for the Emergencies Act is appropriate. Now, that doesn't end the question, though. I mean, it's still going to be determined, you know, up to Justice Rouleau to determine, well, did it meet that standard? Was it Was there, you know, threats to, well, threat or use of serious violence for political, religious, or ideological objectives. 
Now, I noticed when Prime Minister Trudeau was talking about that section in particular, that he skipped over the religious part. I mean, he's talking about political ideological objectives, uh, threat or use of serious violence. Well, we've heard from different witnesses that there didn't really seem to be, I mean, there was some violence, but not something that would raise to the level of a national emergency from, I think, most people's interpretation. Uh, we've heard some threats that, uh, you know, the government felt there was a, a threat of further violence or a threat of economic interference, particularly at the Ambassador Bridge between uh, Windsor and Detroit. Well, whether that's sufficient, that's going to be up to Justice Rouleau. I don't think so, but uh, he may he may find that economic consequences matter. Many times, you know, protests are going to have economic or disruptions, or they're going to be the source of economic disruptions, but, you know, they're still legitimate protests. But, so, the other thing is, for Justice Rouleau, though, he, he can't just say, all right, well, they're, you know, in a perfect world with perfect planning. So we've heard lots about police plans that may or may not have existed. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was talking about that, that there didn't really seem to be a good plan in place. The only one that said that there was a good plan in place was RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. But we also heard, so people are going to say, all right, well, there was a plan and, uh, you know, she made this quote that not all options were exhausted. But she was sitting there at the a cabinet meeting and didn't mention this, didn't raise that to say, hey, wait, hang on. The RCMP's view is that not all other options are exhausted and we should, uh, you know, do those first before we invoke this act. Uh, she sat there and didn't, didn't speak. She wasn't invited to speak, but she didn't, you know, speak up. So what I think Justice Rouleau is going to say, or he's going to have to consider is, well, what did the cabinet know? They had this legal interpretation that was broader in scope, which I think Justice Rouleau is going to accept. They had inputs from CSIS, from the National Security Advisors. They saw that the police were disorganized and didn't seem to be able to handle things on their own. So all of those factors would seem to point to cabinet making, uh, you know, a not terribly unreasonable decision to invoke the Emergencies Act under those circumstances. I mean, it has to have, uh, you know, that when you're thinking about how something is reasonable or not, there's two elements. There's a subjective and objective element. Subjective being, did the person honestly believe that to be the case, that they needed that? And, you know, all the cabinet ministers seem to at length talk about how they felt that that was the case everything they were hearing told them that was the case now objectively we've heard some evidence that you know the coots uh, alberta situation was under control basically the day before it was starting to dissipate the ambassador bridge situation that seemed to be under control or you know that was being resolved uh, that there wasn't uh, really a lot of, uh, you know, there wasn't any substantial, you know, large-scale violence anywhere. And uh, the other thing was that the, you know, it was revoked, at, you know, fairly early on. The RCMP wished it had gone on longer. But I, the, the real reason it was revoked, though, we should recall, was that it was going to go to a vote in the Senate, and the Senate was likely to reject the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So, um, anyway, remember all of those things. 
Those are all the things that Justice Rouleau is going to have to consider. But when he's considering that, he has a wider scope than I think many on the on the convoy side and the opposition side may have hoped he would, uh, you know, use when they look when they first read the act and saw that it was tied to the CSIS Act. Okay, uh, gone on long enough about that. I hope everybody found that uh, you know enlightening to some extent. Uh, the Emergencies Act inquiry has wrapped up its hearings. I think there's going to be some, um, maybe some, some expert opinion or some other opinion, but I think the proceedings themselves are finished. We'll wait to hear what uh, Justice Rouleau's decision is going to be. And then uh, we're going to, by the way, uh, in the time since, this is just a, a timing issue, coming back to the Mass Casualty Commission. The Mass Casualty Commission report is coming out the end of March of next year. The emergencies since that inquiry proceedings finished the emergencies act inquiry has started and will finish and give a final report in the time since the mass casualty commission finished their proceedings and before their report is out so just a comparison of the two inquiries uh, i think many people in nova scotia that have uh, suffered through the mass casualty commission proceedings are looking at the emergencies act proceedings with some envy uh, and you know I think in terms of you know of course the Emergencies Act inquiry is going quickly and maybe too quickly for some but uh, more much more quickly and more efficiently than the Emergencies Act or sorry than the Mass Casualty Commission okay that's it for uh, the 11th of uh, November or sorry <laughs> the 27th of November 2020 Thanks to everybody for watching. Uh, thanks for tuning into all of this, and we'll see you next time.